As an editor of Rolling Stone magazine, he interviewed some of the most iconic musicians of our time, from Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison to Bob Dylan and Elton John. Rock and roll journalist Ben Fong Torres. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This is One on One. Ben Fong Torres. So you don't play a musical instrument, but you are an icon in rock and roll. No. Yes. I am not. Rolling Stone magazine made you famous. You were an editor there for well over a decade. And people will remember you as the guy who sent out that kid reporter in the movie Almost Famous to go get his story. That mean guy, yeah. That mean That's guy. That's me. Mm -hmm. And I told you that I was going to do this because as one journalist to another journalist, it's hard to kind of sum up, but because you have interviewed every major rock and roll and pop musician and country musician that exists, I would say. Okay. Well, you're overstating it, but overstating I'll take it. Overstating a little yeah. bit. If you had to choose your like top most memorable interviews from this huge history, what would it be? What would they be? You know, Maria, I have forgotten them all, actually. <laughs> every single last, even Mick, Elton John. Mick who? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, sum, sum yeah. it up. It's a, it's a tough choice, but I would say that quite often it's the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on that builds to a story that makes it memorable for me. For example, one of my favorites is Ray Charles, because at the time that I suggested the story, he was not really on the charts and getting the kind of acclaim he should have been. What year was this? Oh, one? this is back in the early 70s. Okay. And Aretha's up there, and Otis Redding was a big star, and Joe Cocker, a British guy who sounded like Ray Charles, was on top of the charts and playing the Fillmore Auditorium, but not Ray Charles, except in tandem with Aretha Franklin one time. And I thought the man deserved more. He was one of the foundations of American music, as we know it and love it. And so I just raised my hand, said, Ray Charles is in town. Let's do him. And was their immediate reaction kind of like, Ray Charles. Oh, tell us the story. What's going on with him? Uh, Rolling Stone was always quite open-minded, and back then it was not so much worrying about a person's popularity the way so many magazines are today. And so, if you made your case, then you were sent out and huh. got the story. So and it wasn't about a popular rock star. That wasn't. No, this is a man of history and a man of pride and a man of. Uh, uh, who deserved a lot more than he was getting at that time. And he knew it, too. And, and in that he interview, he actually revealed to you, he talked about the fact that he was addicted to heroin. He talked about the fact right. that he felt that he wasn't getting a lot of recognition, too. Yes, yes. Uh, so we played on pretty much the reasons I had for the story. And uh, by the time we got to know each other, it got to the point where, for the first time, he uh, revealed details about his addiction to heroin and his kicking cold turkey uh, in an institution. Uh, he wasn't that happy talking about it, but he felt like he was compelled to talk about it and felt comfortable doing that where he had not allowed Downbeat and Playboy mm -hmm. magazines to ask details about those incidents. And so the, the story came off really well, won some awards, and I've always thought that it was Mr. Charles who deserved to win those mm -hmm. prizes because he was the one who revealed his story so eloquently. You also have an amazing moment with Janis Joplin where she calls you <laughs> She calls you on the phone. Yeah, Janis and Rolling Stone weren't exactly friends, which was odd because she was a hometown gal in San Francisco coming in from, from Texas and never got much good press in Rolling Stone of all publications. And so, Which sounds kind of like you would say, I, I mean, I was too young at that point, but I mm -hmm. would have thought that Janis Joplin would have been like an icon for Rolling Stone sure. magazine. 
But there can be icons who do shows that don't uh, uh, rub the critic the, the right way or mm -hmm. put out an album that disappointed the person who happened to be assigned to that particular review. And mm -hmm. that's what happened to Janice. So things were not that great between the magazine and her, but she had broken up with Big Brother and the Holding Company, her first band in San Francisco, and gone on to some other ventures. And one night, out of the blue, she finds me, and I was doing some volunteer editing work at a bilingual paper in San Francisco's Chinatown. And I just went down there on Wednesday nights on press night to help slap the paper together. And the phone and rings and Janice, it's... yeah, the phone rings and the editor, Ken Wong, says, hey, Ben, I think it's for you because it's Janice Joplin, who normally does not have much business with our newspaper, East West. And so I took the call, and she had apparently called the switchboard at Rolling Stone. Oh, my God. And they said, oh, we think Ben is out uh, in Chinatown. It's like past midnight, and so then the phone rings, and, and she's calling just to say, hey, man, uh, I'm feeling great. I got this new uh, band. I got this new uh, tattoo, and uh, this boyfriend, and I went to Rio de Janeiro, and man, stuff is wild and down like, there. Notes. And I just <clears throat> began taking notes, and then just wrote a little article out of it. The headline, I remember, was, hey, Janice is feeling great. That's how casual things are at Rolling Stone. You know, whatever we experience would become a story, and the headline and the photos would reflect that. So you also spent some time with amazing, well, one, uh, Michael Jackson. I yes. want to talk about that because right. of the fact that he's passed. And then Grateful Dead, because we know that there are huge Grateful Dead fans out there. But Michael Jackson. Yes. How much time did you spend with him? And when you found out that he had passed, what did it symbolize for you? as this rock and roll, in essence, you're a rock and roll historian. Mm. Well, it went back to 1971, and uh, what it was was a Jackson 5 tour, um, and they were going home to Gary, Indiana, and they were playing a couple of concerts around, like, you know, Lansing, Michigan, I'm not sh quite sure now of the cities, but Columbus, Ohio, and also Encino, California, where they lived. And so I was doing a story that basically tracked them going home, basically. And so doing you were a literally hanging out with the Jackson Five and mm, the whole family. Certain and... scenes backstage, uh, near on stage, and then they had a family reu reunion dinner. So I attended that and uh, observed the dynamics of the family and the brothers and, and the sisters and. Um, then saw them in concert with the uh, opening act being the Commodores. That was interesting. But, and then but interviewed each you, of them separately. Did, did you at that point, did you realize that Michael Jackson could become this huge international star? Did you, did you have a sense? Oh, they already had a number of uh, top ten hits. They were already quite big and it was uh, unquestioned that they were major stars. Michael himself was uh, a megawatt star. He was a brilliant performer. As a, and this is but he was a kid. He's he only was thirteen. A kid. He was only thirteen years old when I met him. But he was, and I described it in the story. And he was just so impressive, and not in a freakish way, but it was a kid who clearly loved the art form of performance and of singing, and had mastered it. The, the uh, James Brown spins and moves and, and the crooning and the, and the blues kind of vocal style. He, he was so sharp and so driven to perfect his, his work that he already excelled in all these different forms of music. It was just amazing. It was, was undeniable. He was an incredibly hard worker. Then five years ago, I meet him again. Now they're the Jacksons. They're away from Motown. They're still 
working together, the brothers, and a slightly different lineup because Jermaine had left uh, and stayed at Motown. And so I met him as an 18-year-old at our home in San Francisco for a TV show. We decided to have a different location than the usual uh, backstage or hotel room. And so they all <laughs> emerged out of a long stretch limo on Buchanan Street in Japantown in San Francisco and popped into our apartment, Diane and mine, and sat there for an interview for television. Michael was extremely shy, uh, a little awkward. You know, he was kind of tall, gangly, wore a black sweater, white shirt, big afro. And, uh, but when, whenever he sat down and, or when it was his turn to talk, he would talk quite earnestly and quite articulately, unlike me. And, uh, <laughs> and said some very interesting things. You're doing things good. You're, you're about, doing good. Uh, but let me ask you this. You know, there is a sense that these rock stars are... You know, we all know this, they're larger than life. You know, they end up on magazine covers, huge concerts. You're with them in their most human moments. Mm. Yes. What do you take away from that? I mean, how do you kind of tell young people, look, don't get taken over by the whole brouhaha and the whole stardom and the... Mm. In the end, you're an artist and you're a human being and you know, how you treat... I mean, what is right. it that you take away from it because you've been with so many of these huge well, iconic rock stars? At that moment, all I did was take away a story. I'm taking notes, meeting a deadline, moving on to the next thing. You're a working so, journalist. I'm not there to advise them. I'm not their minister or their psychiatrist. But you're observing yes. how they interact. Right. And sometimes the artist will say, wow, man, this is like, like being with a shrink, you know, this interview. Because you're probing them. They are revealing things that they would not talk to their own family members about sometimes. And you felt that you had pretty easy access to rock stars to get them. Uh, people assume that there's kind of a wall that they put around themselves, mm -hmm. but in fact, for you... There's a wall, but back then, Rolling Stone was quite often, the, it was really the only game in town on that level of being a serious chronicler of what was going on in rock and roll and pop music culture. And so artists really wanted to be in Rolling Stone. It's unlike today with all the competition from cable television, all the mm. different media platforms, other magazines, daily newspapers, everything is so pop-centric. Whereas before, the daily papers, the mainstream media, basically declined to be interested in what was going on there. And so they, they welcomed us, gave us a lot of access. Uh, today, for example, you're lucky to get 45 minutes with a superstar. Back then you rode on their Learjets or rode the buses with a Linda Ronstadt next to you for an entire three-hour ride somewhere and then because backstage. Do you, do, you, do you feel that today almost now in terms of like music journalism, it's all controlled, contrived, prepared, marketable kind of yes. put into... Right. Yeah. Uh, in one word, yes, there are, of course, exceptions. And some magazines have more access. Back then, Rolling Stone had access to pretty much everybody for as much time but, as, as we wanted. But any time that you read about these guys, it, it feels like it's, you know, it's contrived. It doesn't feel like you're really living mm. with... Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like you're really living with yeah. these big top musicians. Right, you're popping in for a moment, you're getting a sliver of their life and it's only the professional life that you're observing. Whereas back then, as I say, riding in a bus with Bonnie Raitt and Tom Waits and John Prine all hanging out and goofing around. And, Don't drop any names or anything and like getting that. High. <laughs> and I think Diana Ross was in there too. Yeah. Really? But no. Uh, 
<laughs> but you couldn't help but really get to see them. They're there, they are really human beings just hanging out and critiquing each other and making fun of each other and deciding to do a song, uh, spur of the moment, and you're there watching it. It's, it is like almost famous. It was how, how it was with that band for that kid. One of the things that I find so interesting about you um, as an American journalist is the fact that you have also shared your own story. Um, you wrote a memoir, it's called The Rice Room, From Number Two Son to Rock and Roll. And um, within the Asian community, the Asian Journalists Association, I mean, you are, again, an iconic figure because you are an Asian journalist who has made it to the big time. But there was a lot of time when you were a kid growing up in the 1950s and 60s in this country when you didn't like a lot about where you were coming from, who you mm. were. Mm -hmm. You know, you were yeah. working in your parents' Chinese restaurant, working mm -hmm. all the time. Sure. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, that place that you had where you looked at your own culture. Yes. I've learned that that's pretty common. You didn't necessarily like it. Yeah, I think that's a common feeling that kids had. Kids of immigrant families who come, who, who who are being raised in America and want to be Americans and want to be part of what's going on, just to be accepted socially. There's no thinking about mainstream or anything like that. It's just wanting to have friends, somebody to sit with at the cafeteria. You know, the simplest things as a child to be able to play, to be invited to a party, and the the more uh, you are different from what is accepted to be the what you what you see to be the mainstream in society. Uh, the, the more you feel like, oh wow, I have to work a little harder to be able to be sociable and social and accepted. And so, on top of being Chinese American, to also have the obligation with the family to work at the restaurant constantly. The, I, I love that. I, I love that part in your book where no you're just summer. like, you you actually say you say something like. You were um, folding wontons and cutting chicken to the songs of the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and Pachula Clark. Oh, well, yes, right, uh, yeah, yeah, to a certain extent, because doing those chores goes back to the mid-50s. And so we're talking about Doris Day and Eddie Fisher and uh, Perry Como. Uh, listen to music and to baseball games. That's my second love. Okay, all right, yes. you, you, you're going to have to, you, you took me there, Ben. Because now I'm going to have to ask you to impersonate one of those singers. Because <laughs> you would listen to Dean Martin and Elvis. This is becoming the Benny and Maria show. <laughs> I see. Donnie well, and Marie. Which one do you... Elvis you... was my first musical hero, that's for sure. And then uh, I spent a year in Texas with my father, who had a restaurant venture in Amarillo. That's a lot of free time. And so I was able to do what a lot of young American boys, and maybe some girls too, did, standing in front of the mirror trying to do Elvis from watching him on TV. Oh, how cute. Yeah, uh, me, little Chinese kid with a oh ukulele from a discount store. <laughs> so, I, uh, so I learned a song, and, and yeah, uh, and so I would do Elvis, uh, I Beg of You, or Treat Me Nice, or Teddy Bear, Don't Be Cruel. Nowadays I perform, it, uh, perform Elvis um, in person in front of a live band every month in San Francisco. You are just working like crazy. I mean, you could be essentially retired, taking it easy, putting your feet wish, up. Wish, yeah, but right. Nope, instead I work, yeah. Okay, will you sing Dean Martin for me then? Dean Martin you want? Oh, okay. Let's do Dean Martin. Uh, all right. Uh, something like, uh, that's Amore, or Everybody Loves Somebody? Sure. Everybody, Everybody loves somebody sometime. Where's my drink? Everybody <laughs> falls in love somehow. <laughs> Something in your questions just told me my sometime is now. There you are. 
So, so for you, what did you do around this whole reality that your parents, um, you know, you were Chinese American yes. at home. You were having a hard time even communicating with your parents right. because you were focused on speaking English and they were not learning English because they were busy working. That's right. What did you do about this kind of dichotomy of which one am, am I? Am I Chinese? Am I American? Am I Chinese American? Do my parents see me as that? How did you kind of? Yeah, there was no uh, intellectualizing it, that's for sure. It was just day-to-day -day life. This was just reality. Well, was the United States at that point a welcoming country to a young Chinese boy or? We were in Chinatown. And so that was kind of an enclave to a certain extent. We went to Chinese school, you know. Uh, most of the students at Lincoln Elementary School were from Chinatown. There was a mix for sure. One of my, some of my best friends were Japanese and African Americans, but it was largely a Chinese community. And therefore, you didn't really get that much of a sense of the outer society at that young age. And, you know, how, how do you get through that? You, you bond as siblings, which I did, and you uh, do what parents expect of you, which is to work hard and study harder. You go to the additional Chinese school, which again divides you some more because now you're hearing one dialect of Cantonese at home with your parents who speak mainly that. Because you your, your parents came from a small village. Uh, from, yes, uh, two different small villages in Toisan in China, in Guangzhou. And then you're learning a different, uh, the more prominent dialect in Chinese school. They're beginning to teach something called Mandarin, by the way, on the side. So that's three dialects of Chinese plus this newfangled language called English that we're supposed to get a hold of too. And so you're torn all these different ways, all you do is go with it. There, there's really no thinking about it, and gee, I'm not Chinese, I'm not American. No, there's none of that. You just live your day-to-day -day life until you get to the, to the point where you say, okay, this is what I'm interested in, and I'm gonna try to do it. And for me, in the early 60s, wanting to be in media, that was not something uh, where I could aspire after a role model. You know, there were no Chinese-Americans doing broadcasting or newspaper or magazine work, so it was a pipe dream for sure. And your parents, actually, your parents, <laughs> you, you, you like to say that it took them about 25 years to realize but what it was that you were doing, yeah, because you, true. as far as they were concerned... Something like a hippie magazine, something like a hippie newspaper. And that was... That, that was, not, no, so, that was no. not so good. It was not until the Rice Room was published in the early 90s and I went and did a reading at a library branch that happened to be in Chinatown, Oakland, so they could get there easily. And uh, then, then they saw what was going on in terms of some, I wouldn't say fans, but people who read the book or knew my work showed up and they asked for autographs, they took pictures, and so my mom got a, you know, even though I'd been on TV a lot by that time and had a radio show that didn't connect with them. It was seeing it in person and hearing from Chinese friends of theirs uh, or, or parents of people who knew what I did, who would then tell them who I was. Then they knew. But, but you yeah. end up going back to China. Yes. And then you end up kind of discovering your family's roots. Right. I had not been back to the home village since I was about maybe five years old. I went back with my mom and my sister, Sarah. And I'm sure that there are some people who are saying, okay, wait a second. So... Ben Fong Torres goes back to his small village in southeastern China. Hmm. So where does the Torres come in? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay? that's right. Okay, because you are mm. Ben Fong Torres. Yeah, it was a wild night in Vegas. That's what it was. <laughs> uh, 
That's what your dad. No, he wouldn't right. say that. The Chinese hangover. Uh, well, my father. You well. Uh, you know about this, and I think more and more people do understand now that there was the Chinese Exclusion Act enacted in 1882 that pretty much banned the entry of uh, Chinese people into the United States, except for those who were already family of people who were native uh, Chinese Americans who had been born here mm. and were already living here. So there was a lot of uh, illegal activity for people to have to, to get into to come here, that is to become paper sons and daughters uh, and to fake your way in as the child of a, a Chinese American citizen. My father found a different way. As a teenager uh, in China, he had uh, been told that he could make more money going to the Philippines to work. And so that's what he did. He, he moved to Manila as a teenager and began to work and then send money home to, to, to his uh, village in China. And then in uh, Manila, he learned that a way to get to America, which was his goal, uh, was to maybe cross over as a Filipino let national. Me, let, me, let me stop you there. Yes. Why did your dad, so he's from this small southeastern village in China. Yes. What made your dad understand that his goal was, was the America. United States? Yeah. Oh, it was just common knowledge for people who, uh, who, who, who lived a life of poverty and of, of uh, want that there was this, this golden land, this golden mountain, this thing called America that some people had gone to and done well in and could, could prosper and either raise a family or send money back to the family in China. And that this became a pervasive goal among a lot of uh, young men, particularly in, in China. And so my father's way was to, through, through uh, advice from, from uh, friends, buy a piece of paper that made him Ricardo Torres. And so... Okay, wait, so your dad's, his birth name? Is Fong Gokseng Fong Kok Sheng. And he became? Ricardo Torres. Lucy! <laughs> and so he, and he, from his time in the Philippines, he learned enough phrases to pass as a Filipino national. And so he came to uh, Seattle first, and then to San Francisco, and then to Oakland. Do you sometimes, because I know everybody is like, Fong Torres, what yes. is up with Ben Fong Torres? I mean, your dad could have, he could have just decided to be Fong. Yes, he but, could have. But he had taken this Torres mm -hmm. and he said, I'm going to keep it in my name. Well, no, he didn't say any of that stuff, but at the hospital <laughs> when the first child was born, Sarah, uh, a family friend who knew of these things said, dude, you can't be Fong because your legal name here is Torres, all right? Oh. Although now I, I like the sound of Torres. <laughs> so I'm gonna go with that now from now on at <laughs> this late stage in life. And you cannot be Torres because your real God-given name is a Buddha-given name is Fong. So what are you gonna do? And my dad probably shrugged his shoulders and, and the guy said, how about both of them? You know, uh, have your bases covered, and so Fong Torres. It could have been Torres Fong or something else, but that's how they chose to do it, and then later on, as we came along and learned English, we punctuated with a little hyphen. But uh, for a long time, people thought my middle name was Fong and last name Torres. Very confusing, but it's a story. All right, so when I was thinking about this interview, I was like, well, what is rock and roll? You know, and if you kind of look at rock and roll in a, in a historical concept within the United States, what is the lasting lesson of rock and roll. Then I was, well, and is there a lasting lesson of hip hop? And is there a lasting lesson of something else that mm -hmm. is yet to come? I mean, when This is what you do, what do you see? The lasting lesson is express yourself. That's basically it, from generation to generation. 
whether it was Sinatra and the Bobby Soxers or Rudy Valley before him or Elvis Presley uh, on Ed Sullivan, every generation comes along and, and young people need to be able to speak for themselves, to communicate to each other in a language that they, they can actually have as their own if that's possible. There's always going to be that divide between young people and those who are their adults, supervisors, whatever. And so rock and roll is one way to do that. And rock and roll is being redefined every minute. And that's why hip hop it can be put right into the same category as rock and roll. It is the voice of rebellion, of revolt, of uh, our own thing, and leave us alone. So when you look at what might come next, what are you thinking about? Oh, who knows, you know? It, it can be something electronic. It can go right back to acoustic. It's just whatever uh, community of kids. It could, it could go completely simple also. It could be like sure. the opposite of electronic. Yes. And it can stay fashionalized the way it has been for 30 years now, You know, ever since rock matured, so-called, and there became to be branches of rock and roll from acoustic singer-songwriters and folkies to um, punk rockers to the corporate rockers to the... All okay, wait, wait, corporate. Yes, corporate. Well, in the 70s, yeah, rock and roll became such a big industry. Corporate. Well, they were considered to be artists like uh, Kansas and Journey. Uh, they, they, yeah, their music was those. considered to be more thought out, formulaic, manufactured, and less soulful, less anti-establishment, like the punk people, uh, certainly uh, almost as smooth as disco, which was another branch that was coming forth in the mid-70s. Can't, can't deny I was so. there. And disco is still here, you see. It never goes away. None of the forms ever really disappears. All right, so finally, Ben, what needs to happen with American music? Oh, nothing needs to happen with it. It would be nice if um, it stayed that there's always room for roots music. And there's always uh, a, an, an open ear for a, a wide global kind of music. And that it not just go the way of trends, not just boy bands and, and electronic stuff and lip sync stuff. That there's always reality involved. And given the way Americans are and musicians around the world, that will always be the case. No matter how manufactured things get, there's somebody in a basement just doing it on, the, uh, on her own or his own. Ben Fong Torres, thank you for all of your words of wisdom. Thank you, Maria. A pleasure. Continue the conversation at wgbh.org slash one-on-one. -on -one.